Hey, I'm Olivia Covington, host of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the newest podcast from IBJ Media called Off the Record with the Indiana 250. In each episode, IBJ Media CEO Nate Feltman talks with a different leader on the Indiana 250 list of the state's most influential leaders. They discuss their vision for Indiana's future, their experiences in business, and their advice for other aspiring entrepreneurs. New episodes are released on select Thursdays, so go subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Just search for Indiana 250 off the record. Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law brought to you by Taft. I'm Olivia Covington, Indiana Lawyer Editor and your host for this week. Thanks for joining us for our last episode of 2023. That's right, you won't hear from us again until the new year, but don't worry, we'll keep the news going on our website and in the paper. Plus, I'm here with Daniel Carson and Alexa Schrake to bring you this week's headlines, and then I have a really interesting interview to share with you that's all about Native American law. So let's get started. Today is Wednesday, December 13th, 2023, and these are your headlines. Why don't we start with a topic that is almost always dominating headlines, abortion. In Indiana, the Court of Appeals recently heard a challenge to the state's near-total abortion ban. Alexa, you were in the courtroom for that one. What can you tell us? A year after a preliminary injunction was granted in a case challenging the state's abortion law on religious freedom grounds, the Court of Appeals of Indiana heard all arguments in the case last week. The issue before the court was whether the law, which bans abortions except in narrow circumstances, violates the plaintiff's rights under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The plaintiffs are the group Hoosier Jews for Choice and anonymous practitioners of other religions who say their beliefs allow abortions under circumstances outside the exceptions of the state law. The Marion Superior Court granted the plaintiffs' request for a preliminary injunction in December 2022, and the state's defendants are now appealing. The case went before the COA judges L. Mark Bailey, Melissa May, and Leanna Weissman, who had questions about the law's exceptions and the state's alleged compelling interest in limiting abortion. Indiana's new Solicitor General, James Barta, argued on behalf of the state defendants that there is no doubt the state has compelling interest in limiting abortion as soon as an egg is fertilized. But Ken Falk, legal director for the ACLU of Indiana, argued on behalf of the plaintiffs that the law creates a substantial burden on the plaintiff's exercise of religion. I have a more in-depth coverage of the arguments and a story from December 6. Visit theindianalawyer.com and search abortion to read it. Now, if I remember correctly, the plaintiffs in the RIFRA case aren't the only ones taking the abortion issue to an appeals court. So remind us who else is doing that. It's the Satanic Temple, which is appealing the dismissal of its challenge to the state's abortion ban, which also alleges RIFRA violation. The temple had filed a federal complaint alleging the ban interferes with its members' ability to perform the satanic abortion ritual, but Judge Jane Magnus Stinson of the Indiana Southern District Court granted the state defendant's motion to demiss in October. She ruled that the temple failed to prove the facts necessary to support associational standing by not identifying members. The temple is now taking its case to the 7th Circuit Court of Appeals, Its attorney, James McNaughton, told Indiana Lawyer, I think the Southern District got it wrong. Interesting. There's always a lot to unpack with this issue. So, Alexa, I'm sure you'll have more updates to bring us soon. 
So let's shift gears a little bit. In our last episode, I told you about a proposal from the Indiana Supreme Court that would allow graduates of non-American Bar Association accredited law schools to take the Indiana Bar. Since then, the Indiana State Bar Association has weighed in on that proposal. Daniel, why don't you tell us what the ISBA has to say? The Supreme Court proposal has attracted the support of the ISBA, even though the bar opposed a proposal on the same topic from Purdue University earlier this year. The bar sent out a member alert on December 6th, announcing that it would support the Supreme Court proposal, which would allow graduates of non-ABA accredited schools to sit for the Indiana bar in two situations. The first situation is if the applicant graduated from a non-ABA accredited law school in the United States, was eligible to sit for the bar in another state, and the Board of Law Examiners finds the applicant is qualified to take the Indiana bar by education or experience. The second is if the applicant completed legal education outside the U.S., obtained a graduate degree in American law from an ABA-approved school, and the BLE finds the applicant is qualified to take the Indiana bar by education or experience. In feedback submitted to the Supreme Court, Senior Judge Tom Feltz, the current ISBA president, wrote, quote, ISBA believes these changes have the potential to increase the availability of proficient lawyers in Indiana while still ensuring a qualified entity vets the candidates petitioning to sit for the exam, end quote. One school that will be keeping a close watch on the new proposal is Purdue Global Law School. Purdue Global Law, formerly known as Concord Law School, is an online-only law school that wants its graduates to be able to sit for the Indiana Bar. Right now, Purdue Global Law graduates can only take the bar in California, where the school is based. Purdue Global Law and other advocates say allowing graduates of non-ABA-accredited schools to take the Indiana Bar would help ease the state's lawyer shortage. The ISBA had opposed a Purdue proposal earlier this year to allow graduates of non-ABA-accredited schools to take the Indiana Bar, but in its message to members, the state bar said the Supreme Court's proposal is, quote, different, end quote. There are also national efforts to study the bar exam and legal education more broadly, aren't there? Yes. Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush has been chosen to serve on a national task force to study the state of legal education, bar admissions processes, and the decline of public interest attorneys. The Committee on Legal Education and Admissions Reform, or CLEAR, is comprised of 12 members of the Conference of Chief Justices and the Conference of State Court Administrators, who will engage in an 18-month study, then make recommendations to state Supreme Courts for reforms to enhance legal education and diversify bar admission processes. New Hampshire Chief Justice Gordon J. McDonald, chair of the study committee, said, quote, The American justice system stands at a critical juncture. Our profession is falling short in meeting the public's needs. There are vast legal deserts where too many litigants are forced to confront an unfamiliar legal system without a lawyer. Legal service organizations dedicated to the public interest are unable to recruit and retain qualified attorneys, and many new attorneys are not practice-ready upon admission to the bar." End quote. Other members of the study committee include the chief justices of New Mexico, Utah, Oregon, South Dakota, Alabama, Delaware, and Maine, as well as the court administrators in Wyoming, Arizona, and Ohio. Thanks, Daniel. Shifting gears again, Alexa, why don't you tell us about the new CEO of Child Advocates? 
The nonprofit announced on December 5th that Phyllis Armstrong, who is currently its vice president of program operations, will take over as CEO on January 1st. She'll succeed longtime CEO Cindy Booth, who's retiring after almost 30 years of the organization. Armstrong released a statement saying, quote, I'm proud to be part of an organization that has been building and sustaining transformational programs addressing unmet needs of the children in the child welfare system and others who are at the risk of system involvement throughout Indiana. I look forward to leading the agency and supporting our exceptionally experienced and dedicated staff as we continue to champion vulnerable children in need throughout the state. Child Advocate's future is promising thanks to the foundation that Cindy worked tirelessly to set, end quote. Armstrong earned her bachelor's degree from Earlham College, then her JD from Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law. She was admitted to the Indiana Bar in October 1990. She became VP of Program Operations at Child Advocates in the summer of 2020. Before that, she had served as a staff attorney director of the custody program, later known as Family Crisis Advocacy Program, and director of mediation at Child Advocates, which she joined in 1998. In addition to her work with Child Advocates, she also co-founded the Family Practice Division of the Mediation Group. Thanks, Alexa. Now for a couple quick updates from me. First, you might remember my previous reporting on Quentin Cantrell, an Indianapolis attorney who was convicted of federal misdemeanors after entering the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Cantrell was sentenced to probation back in June, and now he's been suspended from the practice of law in Indiana. According to a November 30th order from the Indiana Supreme Court, Cantrell has not cooperated with an investigation conducted by the Disciplinary Commission. A show-cause petition shows that the commission sent Cantrell a notice letter on June 28th, two days after he was sentenced in federal court for the January 6th convictions. Cantrell did not respond to the letter, a show-cause notice, or a request for ruling into tax costs. Cantrell's suspension was effective November 30th, and it will remain in effect until the commission certifies that he has cooperated, or until further order of the Supreme Court. He is also under a separate suspension for noncompliance with CLE and dues requirements. Second, I want to tell you about a new product we're launching here at Indiana Lawyer. It's a new e-newsletter called M&A Monthly. Like the name implies, M&A Monthly will be a monthly newsletter tracking recent trends in the world of mergers and acquisitions and venture capital. The newsletter will hit inboxes one Thursday per month, and it will include coverage of M&A and BC trends, commentary from lawyers in the field, and information about recent deals that have closed, including the names of the attorneys, investment bankers, and accountants involved, plus other relevant info. If you'd like to submit a deal for publication in M&A Monthly, visit theindianalawyer.com slash MA dash monthly. If you'd like to subscribe, visit theindianalawyer.com slash newsletters. All right, Daniel, why don't you finish off our headlines with a preview of a story you're working on for our December 20th issue? I'm working on a story that takes a look at where things stand with judicial nominations and vacancies in Indiana's federal courts as the year comes to an end. Magistrate Judge Joshua Kolar of the Indiana Northern District Court is still waiting on U.S. Senate confirmation to fill a vacancy on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, while St. Joseph Superior Judge Crystal C. Briscoe and Elkhart Superior Judge Gretchen S. Lund were nominated in November to fill vacancies on the Northern District Court. 
and there has been no announcement of a nominee to fill another upcoming federal judicial vacancy on the Indiana Southern District Court when Judge Jane Magnus Stinson assumes senior status in 2024. You can read all about it in Indiana Lawyer's December 20th issue. Thanks, Daniel. And listeners, again, you can check out that story in print or online on December 20th. Okay, that'll do it for this week's headlines. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear my conversation with Chaley John about Native American law. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. Okay, welcome back to the December 13th, 2023 episode of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast. I'm here in our Monument Circle studio with Chaley John, an associate at Shucka and Associates. Chaley, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Chaley practices business, commercial, and general civil litigation, as well as Fair Credit Reporting Act cases and appeals. She's a 2016 graduate of the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University, and she is enrolled in the Navajo Nation. And so that's kind of where we're going to focus our conversation today. So Chaley and I are recording in early December, which is right after Native American History Month ended in November. And of course, Native American heritage is particularly important in Indiana, which literally means land of the Indians. Um, The Hoosier State is the ancestral home of several tribes, and many of those have pursued and are still pursuing business activities here in Indiana. So Chaley, let me start with just a general question. Sure. So given that Indian tribes are sovereign nations... What's the relationship between tribal law and the laws of the state or federal law? So the tribal nations are sovereign nations and they are able to promulgate their own laws and regulations, whether that be civil or criminal. And Congress has delegated some ability for the Native American nations to prosecute um, even non-natives on Uh, reservation land through the um, Violence Against Women Act in particular for those kind of more domestic violence-focused low-level batteries and stuff. So obviously, tribes are able to prosecute on their own land. They're able to regulate on their own land with regards to like water and air quality and as well as like civil regulations such as sales tax, hotel tax, tourism taxes and stuff like that. As you can imagine, the tribes out west, a lot of tourist activity happens, especially with the Grand Canyon Monument and Antelope Canyon and stuff like that. So the tribes are able to pretty much stay separated from the state. The state laws have no effect on the reservation because it's considered part of the federal federal land that is held in trust for indigenous nations. And so federal law does apply on the reservation. There are some instances, like I said, that the federal government can delegate some of their responsibility to the tribe and the tribe can enact that federal responsibility. For instance, in education, the federal government 
often either has rights enshrined in treaties or just through the Department of Education to educate Native children, but the tribe can take that on through Section 638 contracting. So it's a complicated web. There's Gosh, I can't remember the name of the movie, Um, (laughs) but there are several movies that kind of um, joke about in several TV shows that joke or create a whole law and order case about tribal jurisdiction issues. You know, if someone goes missing on the reservation, but they maybe go to school off the reservation, they're a tribal member, but the suspected person is non-tribal member, it can get super messy. So that is kind of the complicated relationship of being a domestic dependent nation in a tri-state sovereign, separate sovereign nation. Wow. And, you know, I I read your background and, you know, you do a lot of litigation work, but you speak with a lot of authority on these issues. So, I mean, do you do you practice at all in this area? Not not currently. um, But in law school, I was fortunate enough to. So at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, um, There is an Indian legal program, and there's a specific focus on educating indigenous students, both in the United States and in Canada, Um, particularly because of the number of tribes in Arizona. They really wanted to foster indigenous law students, and there's even some law to um, like a law pipeline for law students to go out to the reservations and kind of explain to children there or, you know, Phoenix City children, whatnot. Um, so anyway, long story short, I went to uh, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, has a heavy emphasis on Native American studies. Um, I participated in the Indian Legal Program as well as the Indian Legal Clinic and spent both my law school summers out in D.C. first for the Udall Foundation's congressional internship where I was placed at the Department of the Interior in the Office of the Solicitor. And I primarily worked on issues affecting all sorts of issues on the Department of Interior's oversight. So what people generally refer to as like the BIA or Bureau of Indian Affairs about them in their relationship with tribes. So there were issues with education, with water, um, with hunting, all sorts of issues that came up during that internship. And then my second summer, I was with the Native American Rights Fund. And during that summer, we had, I worked primarily with a tribal Supreme Court project. And one of the big cases we worked on was the repatriation of Jim Thorpe's remains to the Sac and Fox Nation because he is currently buried in Pennsylvania under in a town called Jim Thorpe. But the tribe and his um, indigenous relatives would like him would like him to be returned. And so we were litigating that case and it was before the Supreme Court. They did not take it up on cert. But um, so the law at play there was the Native American Um, Graves Protection Act, NAGPRA. So a lot of times, and that's another area of law that comes up in Indiana as well, is when indigenous remains here, not so much recent remains, but ancient remains when they pop up through development or whatnot, how do we identify those, get them back to their tribes or their now living ancestors? So I was able to gain a lot of experience during law school. So that's kind of where my knowledge comes on this. And then just because of my heritage, I keep up on these things and try to stay on top of them as much as possible. Sure. 
So one case the Supreme Court did take was the case looking at the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, which for listeners who might not know, that law establishes a preference for Native children removed from their families to be placed with extended families or Native foster families. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And the, the U.S. Supreme Court, I think just back in June, upheld the constitutionality of that law. So yes. kind of talk me through the significance of that. So um, that was a significant case this summer because it reaffirmed the validity of the Indian Child Child Welfare Act, which has been criticized multiple times for specifically in cases where there's a non-Indian family who's wanting to adopt an Indian child. It might be through, you know, very distant relative relations, or it might have been this Indian child was living off reservation and then this non-Indian family wants to adopt them because they were foster parents or whatnot. Um, So whenever the kind of termination of parental rights comes up, the Indian Child Welfare Act has placement preferences for where that Indian child is placed permanently. And the tribes and Indian family are at the top of those placements placement preferences. So that's where I think a lot of the disputes come from are people who find, don't understand that it is not a racial preference for indigenous tribes or indigenous family members to undergo that scrutiny, but it's more of a citizenship analysis. And in the me- most recent Supreme Court case, they didn't really get into that much be- that that much because the court found that the challenge to ICWA was not valid because ICWA was enacted by Congress and Congress has plenary power to legislate over Indian affairs. So that's kind of the the major like linchpin that um, the Supreme Court hinged its decision on in upholding ICWA. But of course, tribes and indigenous people across the United States, I think, were very happy about the law um, being upheld just because it does keep Indian children. It helps ensure that there's another step before Indian children are removed from their home with the past removals of Indian children, either to boarding schools or to um, cities. I think it's ICWA was a good reaction to that to make sure that there's another check on ensuring that tribes and Indian relatives have a say before an Indian child is removed from their tribal family. Sure. And now before we restarted started recording, you mentioned something related to this about, you know, eligibility to enroll in a in a tribe. Mm-hmm. So kind of talk me through that related issue. Yeah. So like I was saying, um, sometimes people don't necessarily understand that this isn't a racial issue. It's a more of a political issue, a political affiliation in becoming a citizen in a tribal nation. So all tribal nations have different eligibility requirements in order to be enrolled in a tribe. And there are also a difference between federal and state tribes. So ICWA only applies to federal tribes. It does not apply to um, state-recognized tribes. So you have, for ICWA to apply, the child has to either be enrolled in or eligible for enrollment in a federally recognized tribe. And that tribe sets its own eligibility requirements. For instance, there might be one tribe, um, such as my own, the Navajo Nation, their eligibility is a one-quarter blood quantum requirement. So any child that is born that is 
uh, may have a quarter blood Navajo requirement or is enrolled in the Navajo Nation, ICWA would apply to them. But there's other tribes who have different eligibility enrollments. Some are tied to a ancestral list, like the Dawes Removal Act rolls. When tribes were being moved from east to west, they took a list. And if you can tie yourself to an ancestor on that, then you are eligible because with the removal in intermarriages, it's a lot, blood quantum is a lot harder to quantify. So a lot of times they use those enrollment lists to determine their present ancestors. So it's it's confusing, I think, for some people because stereotypically, I think there are probably connotations of what is or is not an Indian child. And I think a lot of people, when something like ICWA comes up, that is unexpected, perhaps because of those stereotypical ideas of what an Indian child is. Um, I think that's where people get a little bit upset about having this extra step to go over to make sure the child is placed in the proper care. Sure. So bringing this to Indiana specifically, a few years ago, I know there was a bill in the legislature, I think I I wrote about it, um, about extending full faith and credit to tribal orders. Now, that's been a few years ago. That might have been 2021 or, or 2020. So we're a little removed from that. But can you talk to me a little bit about the concept of that legislation and kind of what's come out of it in the years since? Yeah, so I, um, to be frank, I'm not sure where the status of that legislation is either. Um, However, learning from my husband, who's a transactional attorney and does kind of stay on top of these things a little bit better than I do, (laughs) I understand they're not necessarily looking so much for a legislative fix, but in contracting with tribes, especially in Mm -hmm. Indiana and the Midwest, as tribes are engaging in gambling ventures or gaming ventures or various you know, river boats or getting into agricultural ventures, a lot of times those partnerships are the full faith and credit is being enshrined in the contracts in mm. those partnerships. So the choice of law provisions are being made explicitly clear and waivers of sovereign immunity are being made clear. And so I think that's how a lot of that is being done, dealt with in day-to-day practice. Interesting. Now, something else you mentioned to me before we started recording was kind of the issue of hemp and, and marijuana and how that relates to, to tribal law versus state state law. Just walk me through that. Yes. So um, there are some tribes in states, particularly where they have legalized the use and production of marijuana and hemp, and tribes have been getting into those ventures, particularly in Michigan. Hmm. Um, so because, for instance, marijuana is not federally re- recognized, there wouldn't be – or federally recognized <laughs> – federally um, legalized. Sure. They're not necess- They're not doing the production on the reservation since that is considered federal land, but they're using, you know, f- gaming funds or whatever vent- funds the tribe has to engage in those ventures – And I think that the idea is that someday when it does become federally legal, the tribe could do the production on reservation, and then the tribe could sell those products on the reservation as Mm -hmm. well, and that would avoid state sales tax. So very similar to how tribes have seen economic prosperity through using cigarettes by producing them on reservation and then selling them on reservation and avoiding state sales tax as states have moved to kind of penalize the use of 
cigarettes through elevated sales tax. Tribes have seen a way to extract some economic prosperity by doing their own and avoiding those sales tax. So I think the the intention behind tribes starting to engage in marijuana and hemp industries is so that they can go ahead and form those partnerships and start engaging in the production and then when and if the those things are legalized federally, they'll be able to utilize the same kind of model that they did with products such as cigarettes and avoid those state sales taxes. Sure. So that's kind of a, an emerging area to watch. Yep. 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 So what about just generally, you know, are there any bar associations, uh, affinity groups for, for Native American attorneys? So as I am aware, <laughs> and I try to keep on top of most of these things, there is not an affinity group in Indiana okay. for Native American attorneys. Um, there is a National Native American Bar Association, of which I'm a member, and there are state chapters of NABA. And um, in Arizona, that is a robust chapter. Sure. There's, um, you know, banquets and they sponsor scholarships. And there's a National Native American Law Students Association. Oh, wow. And um, there are law schools that have NALSA chapters, um, such as uh, ASU's law school has chapters and they hold an annual national moot court competition. And that's a really good way to connect with um, Native students across the country, especially because it's a f it's such a heavy federal law practice that eventually, if you practice Native American law, you'll probably bump into people from all over the country. But in terms of Indiana, no. Um, <laughs> it's basically just me and my husband. We're oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's funny. But if there's anyone else out there, hit us up. We'll hang out. <laughs> Well, all right. That'll do it for this week's extended interview. Jaylee, thanks again for joining us. You're welcome. All right, listeners, as always, if you want to hear more of our extended interviews, check out our previous episodes at theindianalawyer.com slash podcast or find us on your favorite streaming source. And just a reminder, this is our last episode of 2023. So we will see you in the new year.